we create the future, right? So if you are not active in that process, it means that someone else is on your behalf. So I think I think what Bitcoin what Bitcoin encourages us is to take control of our own lives, and I think that that is that is something that isn't theoretical, right? That is something that we could do right now, right? Like if you care about the future of humanity, if you want to make the world a better place, uh, if you want to have an impact on the world, then make it so. Make it so. You you have that capability. Welcome to another episode of Light with Bitcoin, where we delve into the human side of Bitcoin by chatting with one Bitcoiner at a time to discover their life, stories, personal growth, and challenges through the lens of Bitcoin. I'm your host, Vivian Chang. Thanks for tuning in. Today, we have the pleasure to have John Dennehy. Um, John Dennehy is the founder of My First Bitcoin, a Bitcoin education nonprofit based in El Salvador. The project has taught over 25,000 students, including the first students anywhere in the world to ever receive a Bitcoin diploma program in a public school system. It has open sourced all of its educational materials and has ambitious plans to teach millions of students in El Salvador and beyond. Welcome, John. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Before we jump into my first Bitcoin and all of the ambitious plans you have, I want to talk about your personal story as a Bitcoiner. You are a New Yorker. What was the first time when you stepped out of New York and realized, oh, it's the, the rest of the world is not what I see in New York? Yeah, well, two times. Once was the first time was going away to university and I just went away in Connecticut. So it was literally the neighboring state, but it's still allowed me to to see New York with a different perspective. And what really did it was the first time that I left the country, which was when I was in university, then I visited Peru and Bolivia. And that was my first like international trip. And that really opened my eyes to one, uh, the uniqueness of, of each place, whether it's Bolivia or whether it's New York or anywhere else. Um, but also the vastness of the world, right? Like how different one place could be from another. And uh, what was what what were some um, particular differences that you noticed at the time? Well, that first time, um, and it's what's drawn me to Latin America ever since. I've always felt that in Latin America, people take more they take more charge of their own lives here. Like one thing that frustrate, frustrates me about the United States is for the most part, people seem to accept the situation that they're presented with, right? Maybe they complain about it, um, but they don't really try to change it. And and the first time that the first trip that I took out of the U.S., I had the 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 fortune or misfortune of of kind of witnessing some pretty dramatic scenes in in Bolivia in La Paz and outside La Paz um there was some anti-government protest movements that were you know shutting down the capital city and 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 really taking charge of the situation and that was attractive to me because I I had been frustrated and maybe without always fully realizing it, how complacent um, 
many people could be in the United States, right? Like it's one thing to complain, it's another thing to take action. Yeah, definitely. But it's such a shame because U.S. it's historically has been a country to take initiatives, to to um, take actions. Um, why do you think this is? Like why people in Latin America seem to have more um, autonomy? Latin America is part of the ascendant world and the United States is part of the descendant world. And I think that has a lot of influence on just like everyday things in life. Like in the United States, people are more likely to look to the past or the present, whereas in Latin America, people are more likely to look to the present or the future. And I think that that very simple shift changes, has, has a lot of knock-on effects. Yeah, for sure. It's almost like when you adapt certain beliefs, it's so fundamental that it changes absolutely everything. Just like when you adapt a low time preference, everything that you do afterwards start to shift um, yeah. towards a lower time preference standard. Um, and we'll definitely delve into those values late, later. Um, growing up in New York, what are some of your um, early passions and interests that kind of shaped your worldview or it really started to take shape once you're out of the US? Actually, all the way back. <laughs> um, an important event that, that shaped my life was I was I was born with a speech impediment and I was not able to speak until I was seven years old. I was not able to 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 communicate, right? I can make like noises, but nobody could understand what I was trying to say until I was seven. Uh, I was undiagnosed for a long time. They thought that I was just slow, basically. Um, and that that had really profound influence for the rest of my life, even today. Uh, one is it made me more assertive in my own life. Like I literally couldn't ask for help. So I just had to, if I was thirsty, I just had to go get a glass of water. Right. Um, another is it made me a, a lot more introspective and it made me, you know, <laughs> yeah, I bet. <laughs> uh, yeah. Like be in my own mind a little bit more and ponder things which I think eventually led me to, to write in in journalism, right? But it, but it starts there. It starts with that, the first few years of life. Um, and then the next big event for me was, I was 19 when September 11th happened. That made me view the world a lot differently. It made me view problems that the world have for the first time and also view them with urgency and view them view them in a way, and this is probably the start of my frustration with, with apathy, right? It's like, there are things that we could do better, so why are we accepting the way things are? And September 11th was the first time that I really had those thoughts. Do you think New Yorkers share the same experience as you do? Like, how do they typically view 9-11? No, I do not think that, that I would fit into the mainstream there. Um, in New York, post-September 11th, for me, it seemed like there was a lot of vengeance and a lot of desire for, for blood, right? Eye for an eye sort of stuff. And I kind of felt the opposite. I thought this happened because there is a massive misunderstanding, a massive misalignment. And... Uh, the, the way that we prevent this from happening again in the future is to, is to 
to learn, right? Is to, to, uh, is to see what the problem is and try to solve it. Not, not try to like hurt someone else. Not like I was hurt. So now I want to hurt someone else. Like that doesn't solve any problems. Um, and that was, that was the reaction that most people had. It was, it was reactionary, right? Where like the way that I responded to it was, okay, how do we stop this from happening again? Rather than like, how do we get revenge for this? Um, right. And that was really frustrating. And that led me to become an activist. It led me to get arrested frequently. <laughs> and it ultimately led me a couple of years later to, to leave the United States. Right. And this brings to my next question. You tweeted uh, once, and basically you tweeted out a photo from 2002. Uh, you, you said in the tweet that you were protesting a meeting for the IMF in DC. Tell us the story. You were smiling and you're all looking cherry. Um, what happened? Yeah, so that was uh, the spring 2002 meetings of the IMF. Um, and you know, the, the, the International Monetary Fund is this massive institution which has great influence over the world. And, it, and it's an institution that, that is somewhat secretive, at least in the sense that I don't think most people realize the sort of power that it has over their life. Uh, and I think that's by design. And, and this is something, you know, pre-Bitcoin, I, I always felt that centralized power was one of the evils to fight against, right? Um, so I went, I went to this meeting to, to protest it, and there was um, the day before it was like a mass day of civil disobedience, and there were lots of arrests, there were like six or seven hundred arrests. And then this was like the big day, right? This was like the march, the big day. And we were, we were kettled in a park. The idea was to, to shut down the meetings, right? Um, before we could arrive at the meetings and the police, uh, you know, they kettled us, they, they diverted us into a park, surrounded the park and kept us in there. I had electrical tape in, in, in my pocket at the time because I had very old shoes that were held together by tape. And I climbed a statue in the middle of the park and I just, you know, ripped the tape out and I wrote no war on, on this, on the statue in the park. So this was, this was like leading up to the Iraq war, right? This was before the war started, but like things were kind of in motion already. Um, you know, the writing was on the wall that the U.S. government was trying to, was going to try to, uh, have a war, uh, in Iraq. Um, which was something that I was strongly opposed to. So I, I wrote no war. I climbed the statue and wrote no war on the statue in electrical tape. And a few minutes later, a bunch of riot police like came into the park to specifically like target me to arrest me for vandalism. Um, and it was the, it was the first arrest of the day. So, and they were, the media was anticipating a lot of arrests that day. So because it was the first one, there was like a lot of attention. Um, and, and that photo, I think was the photo that ran in like the Washington Post the next day. Oh. Um, so, and, and it was just, it was just kind of a surreal scene to, to like have this big hubaloo about like putting electrical tape on a statue. <laughs> Um, so, I was, yeah. so, so I was, I was just 
you know, kind of having fun with the moment. I had also, by that point, in the previous months, I had been, I had begun to be pretty active with, with protests. So I kind of knew the routine. It's all, it's all show, right? Like protests in the U.S., the rest are, are quite common, um, or at least they were at that point. I've been out of the U.S. so long. I don't know how the dynamics have changed. Um, but it's all for show, right? They charge you with like some minor thing. They drop the charges, but it's just to get you off the street. It's to intimidate you mostly. Uh, so, you know, the key is to not fall victim to that. Like what they're trying to do is to scare you. So do the opposite. Right. Well, in hindsight, you've got a great photo here. So <laughs> I consider it a win. Um, but um, talking more about um, people in New York, do you have any specific insight about uh, Bitcoin adoption in New York um, based on some of the stereotypical, I guess, um, type type of um, typical New Yorkers or people in that general area? Um, do, do you think they're more likely or less likely to be into Bitcoin? It depends. So they are more likely to be into Bitcoin as an investment. If you're talking about someone that just doesn't really understand it, never uses it, opens an, an account on Coinbase and buys it, hoping for the price to go up, then mm -hmm. I think penetration is probably fairly high there, um, higher than, than many other places. Uh, you know, people have disposable income uh, and people are like, you know, trying to keep up with, with, with the latest technology and, and investments and all that. But if the question is about people that actually use Bitcoin, that use Bitcoin as freedom money, then in New York, it's very low. And I think it's going to be much slower to catch on there than, than most other places. And, and it's, it's, it's kind of the converse of a place like El Salvador. In El Salvador, there's less people that will have Bitcoin as an investment, but more people that might use it as freedom money. In New York, people don't use it as freedom money. They see it as an investment. Yeah, fair enough, because they don't, they don't need to. There's no necessity out of Bitcoin for them. Not yet. <laughs> Not yet. Yeah, totally. Um, I totally didn't know about your speech situation, given you're a journalist. And, yeah. you know, like, <laughs> so let's talk about your, your career choices. Uh, before my first Bitcoin, you were a journalist. Uh, what were you covering at the time? What was it like to work inside of the media space as an insider? I mostly worked freelance, which was really great because that allowed me to decide what I would write about rather than have a regular beat. Um, and what I tended to write about was international politics and and money. Those were kind of the two reoccurring themes. Uh, so, so I would write about Bitcoin but not from like, you know, uh, a Bitcoiner's perspective, but from like a normie perspective, right? Uh, so an example of that would be, I mean, and not always directly about Bitcoin, but about like how we perceive value, for example. So like one, one article that, um, that, that uh, you know, I, I really enjoyed writing was I lived in Nepal and in Nepal, uh, in the village that I was living in, then... I realized that they used firewood as as money. Um, you know, there were no banks for many days hiking, and the Nepali rupee is is a terrible currency. Uh, so people didn't want to use it. But wood, firewood, was something everyone needed. It was scarce. It was hard to get to. You had to like 
put in proof of work, right? You had to like a lot to get it. Um, So people would trade that and they would keep it on their roofs. So like it was super transparent how much money everyone had, which was really interesting. So I wrote about how the unbanked in rural Nepal create money and store wealth, right? Which for me, like I had already learned about Bitcoin by then. So, you know, I think I was more attuned to those things. Um, So I often wrote about Bitcoin without writing about Bitcoin, if that makes sense. Yeah, so it basically means you were pre-entrepilled by all all of the ideas and values and things that you could be interested in if you were a Bitcoiner, before you were a Bitcoiner. Um, I've, I've seen yeah. a lot of people are like that. I was predisposed to Bitcoin um, because of just personal experiences. I lived in Ecuador and um, after there was a revolution, there then the new government didn't recognize the authority of the old government which granted my visa and it, i got caught up in that and i was arrested and deported um and in that in that process they seized my assets right like the government seized all my assets i had a bank account there and everything so you know when i heard about a money that made the 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 dream of the separation of money and state real like i was like yeah that makes sense like finally (laughs) yeah Yeah, finally okay so that means that if this this situation happens again then the government can't take my money okay yeah that sounds good (laughs) but how 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 were you exposed to bitcoin in the first place i know that the clicking part it was real fast but how were you exposed to the point that you're into it right away so i read an article again i was just interested in international politics uh, and there was, you know, there was a crisis in early 2013 in Cyprus, um, and there was a bank bail-in where the government actually went into people's bank accounts, and they took out a percentage, like eight percent or thirteen percent. I think it varied depending on how much money you had. Um, and I read an article about that. You know, that's a big deal, like for a government to go in and take money out of their citizens' bank accounts. So I read an article about it. And there was a throwaway line in the article, Bitcoin users unaffected, something something like that. And I was like, what? Who's unaffected? So so then I looked it up and read the white paper and all that. But yeah, it was just this throwaway line about the, the banking crisis in Cyprus in 2013. It's so interesting because for you, it basically took one line yeah. <laughs> versus, versus for a lot of people, you hear it again and again and... Um, various resources so I guess we um, in a way we all get the prize we deserve I already had a anarchist type philosophy where I believe that the state had too much power but you're one of the only people that I know have actually looked into Bitcoin the first time that they've heard about it yeah and and, and I'll caveat this afterwards because uh, it sounds more dramatic than it is within a month, within a few weeks of hearing about Bitcoin for the first time, I sold everything I had and bought Bitcoin with it. Like I was that convinced that, that it was going to change everything. The caveat is that I had almost nothing, right? So like <laughs> sold everything I had was like, you know, some baseball cards and, and like all <laughs> cell phone. <laughs> Which in itself is a sort of value if you think about it, baseball cards. Is, is it true that, in your opinion, that the media has been weaponized as a tool 
to use as a control mechanism and to mani- for for manipulation. Yes and no. I think I think media and journalism is just a tool. So it depends how people wield it. Um, I think what attracted me to journalism is the same thing that that attracts me to Bitcoin, and that is that when done properly, both are a check against power. However, journalism seemingly more every year has strayed away from that ideal, and I think that is. Not to say that there aren't still good journalists out there, right? But I think the incentive structure is such that it encourages bad behavior, right? It doesn't encourage people to seek truth; it encourages people to seek clicks,、mm-hmm. right? Which is a very different thing.、Yeah. To seek truth is is actually extremely valuable. It's an extremely high、uh, social value, and and to impart that truth on others. Um, but it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of effort and energy. And on the other side, for the reader, it it also takes a lot of time and energy. And we live in a world that is increasingly lacking in that in that attention span for it. So there's not the audience is smaller for it, which means that the money is smaller for it. And that's not even taken into consideration that like on a per word basis, the that journalist is going to have to put in a lot more work. So it's even more exaggerated, right? So it's like you could earn much, much better by going for I don't know the lowest common denominator, denominator going for controversy, going for for anything else, right?、Um, truth is the one that you earn the least in, and that I think is more true every year. And so I think the media landscape becomes worse every year. I don't think that it's a lost cause,、um, but it is certainly trending in the wrong direction. Right. The impression I'm getting about this is because everything, like our life, surrounded by internet and the whole political, economical situation right now, it's so fast-paced and it's very stressing. The idea of craft seems to be. Losing its substance every year because, exactly like what you were saying, that the low attention span and people can't seem to be patient enough to sit down and read a book or crafting anything these days, which is such a shame.、Um, so for you, what's what is your definition of responsible media? So in an ideal world, what role do you think responsible media plays in addressing controversial global issues, and how can they even be? Um, neutral, because because it seems like right now you have to pick a side sometimes. I don't think you can be neutral. I think that that's、uh, objectivity is a myth. That said, I think it's an ideal to to strive towards, but also to recognize that you'll never achieve it.、Um, so I I think I'd like to almost flip that and put more onus on the consumers of media. Right, like rather, I I know I know, journalists get a lot of hate, especially in the Bitcoin space,、uh, but also generally. But there's there's two sides to this, right? One is one is the side of of the journalist, but the other is the consumer of that media, and it's really important that the consumer of the media is, 
is just aware, right, that they're literate about that. The same thing is, is financial literacy is super important, and I think Bitcoiners recognize that. We also need to recognize the importance of media literacy, right? Like knowing where information comes from, what the biases are from that source, and being able to process that in a, in a you know, in a way that, that weighs these different factors. Right. I see. And um, into Bitcoin space, do you think, because you, you were pre-exposed to Bitcoin and you were already adapting all these values previously to becoming a Bitcoiner. So do you still f realize there's something about you that was changed by Bitcoin? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Hope. Right. So I, before Bitcoin, I knew that there were many things about the world that I disagreed with and that I wanted to, I wanted to, to try to change. But Bitcoin is what gives me hope that we will accomplish that, that we will do it. I think without Bitcoin, I would, I would probably by this point be pretty pessimistic about the future of humanity. Um, but with it, I'm very optimistic about it. So, so yeah, that is it, it is it is something that 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 gives me a lot of hope, and that's so important because hope is its own sort of energy, its own sort of like fuel to to keep going, to keep pushing, and we all need it, right? Whether we're working on a on a project or, or building a family or or, you know, just a, you know, a typical nine to five job, like to get up every day, we need to have some hope in the world. Right. Um, and that's what, that's what Bitcoin provides me with. And you definitely right now live in one of the most hopeful countries in the world in El Salvador. And I want to gauge your process of making a commitment to drop a life in New York city altogether and move to El Salvador. What was the decision-making process like? So interestingly, a couple of people like after El Salvador announced uh, that they were making Bitcoin legal tender, I was actually living in Ecuador at the time. A couple of people reached out to me and they were like, so you're moving to El Salvador, right? And I was like, mm, am I? No. Why, why would I do that? Like, it, right. like it's funny that a couple of friends of mine realized that I was going to end up in El Salvador before I even did myself. Uh, I think... I think I was a, a little bit in disbelief the first the first few days after the news just because it was a surprise like I wasn't expecting it this is a really big deal and it, it was just happened a good bit earlier than I was expecting um, but yeah once once I uh, once it kind of settled in like okay yeah this this is real this this is happening um, it was actually a pretty easy decision for me. I have lived, uh, you know, my whole adult life uh, pretty nomadically. Um, you know, I've, I've lived in maybe 12 or 13 different countries, visited 60 or 70 different countries, but like stayed and worked in 12 or 13 of them. Um, so it, it I like to go to new places, especially places that are experiencing change. That's kind of like been my MO in my adult life to 
to live in Myanmar after they were transitioning to democracy, uh, to live in Timor-Leste, like also transitioning into democracy or away from a civil war. Um, so I've always been excited by places undergoing change. And then, so this is a place undergoing change because of Bitcoin. It was like, okay, yeah, I should probably go there. Seems like you're either a, a troublemaker or a seeker for chaos. <laughs> going to all these dodgy places. Um, did you know you were doing My First Bitcoin before you moved there? I guess not, hey? I did, yeah. You did? Um, ah. Yeah, so so I I thought, you know, in, in that in that 90-day period after the law was announced and before it went into effect, so I moved about 60 days later. And as soon as I decided that I wanted to 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 be there, to be in El Salvador for this. Um, then the second thought was, okay, how can I contribute? Like what, what can I do? Like what are the, what will be the voids and how can I help fill them? And, you know, one of the thoughts that I had was education, right? Like that was something I was aware of, like through travels that, education levels were, were quite low. Again, I, I, a touchstone for me in Latin America is Ecuador. And I knew earlier that year in 2021, I was trying to talk to everyone I knew in Ecuador about, about Bitcoin. And the knowledge levels were quite low. So that was kind of like my, my touchstone. So I, I presume that, that there would be a lot of work to do in El Salvador. Everywhere else I had been, there was a lot of work to do in that department. So I presumed El Salvador would be the same. Um, and I think education is really important. Uh, I think that one of the dangers with Bitcoin is that is that it could be co-opted, uh, you know, by like the black rocks of the world. And I think our greatest defense against that is to be properly properly educated on what Bitcoin allows, like the the sort of agency that it gives to the individual. Without that, without that proper education, then I think we're we're pretty vulnerable to co-option. Um, so yeah, so I I thought like okay, you know, I'll try to do something with Bitcoin education. It was what was my first Bitcoin the first try for naming this program. Uh, yeah, there were a couple of candidates. I think when my first Bitcoin came to mind, then I had a good feeling about it. It's very simple. It translates between Spanish and English very easily. Mm. The original idea of the project was actually to start it simultaneously in the United States and El Salvador and it'd be paid in the U.S. and free in El Salvador, like, so the paid classes in the U.S. would subsidize the free ones in El Salvador. Um, we very quickly moved away from that because the growth in El Salvador was much faster, like it would, it would slow things down a lot if, if we waited for, for growth in the U.S. Um, but yeah, so that, that seemed like a good name. The other name that I liked, but I workshopped this with friends, right? Uh, nobody else really liked this name, um, was 
something, I think there were a couple of variations, but something with the word Pacha. So Pacha Bitcoin uh, or something like that. Pacha BTC, Pacha BTC. Uh, and Pacha is a Quechua word that is tough to translate, but two words, two words that it's used as a prefix in, 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 so Quechua is, is a, is a very popular language in Ecuador. It's the indigenous language, right? It's like the language of the Incas. Um, and Pachamama means like mother earth. So it's a prefix of that really important word of like, but it's more than mother earth. It's like being connected to the earth, right? Mm -hmm. Being connected to, to things beyond yourselves. Um, so it's the prefix to that. And it's also the prefix to Pachacuti, mm. which means it's, it's again, tough to translate this into English, but it means something like we are upon a time of great change. So it was this prefix to these really powerful words. Uh, and I, I thought like maybe that could be combined with, with Bitcoin and, and um, but then there's no like recognition. You have to explain it to people, yeah. right? If you have to explain it to people, then maybe it's not the right choice. <laughs> yeah, that's similar to what I came up with the name for this podcast. I had my other candidates, but decided, you know, I'm just going to keep it simple. And life with Bitcoin is pretty self-explanatory. This is what we're yeah. going to talk about on the show. I'm always interested in how people name things because there's always a story yeah, yeah. behind the naming process. And you mentioned the con you mentioned that it's fundamental to educate people on the 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 um, concept of sovereignty, on the concept of agency, and be even before prior to talk to money. And this is how you're structuring the course as well. And I can definitely see the concept of decentralization, individual sovereignty, and freedom are at the very core of how the course is set up. And how do you see the concept of decentralization aligning with your own values and beliefs about individual sovereignty and freedom? Yeah, um, I think I think that is something that is so important to Bitcoin and so important to 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 the future world that we want to create um, is decentralization. I think the root of so many of, of the world's problems is a concentration of power. There's a, there's, a great, there's a great analogy. Power is like manure. When you take it and you just put it all in one place in a big pile, what you have is a pile of shit. But if you take that same manure and you spread it out, what you have is fertilizer. Right. And I think that that's how I like to think of power. Right. Like power always exists. Like there's no there's no world in which the concept of power um, doesn't exist. But there is a world in which power can be fertilizer for the individual rather than a pile of shit next to us uh, that that like, you know, just gets in the way of everything else and gives us a bad experience. Um, so that that is. That's a core value of Bitcoin, and that's, I think that's a core value that I hold as well, that, that, that yeah, when, when concentrated power creates problems, uh, when spread out, it, it could be quite advantageous. Mm-hmm. 
And this, how you, how you're structuring the course is that you don't even mention Bitcoin until chapter four out of the entire ten chapters you have. You've covered this in the past um, in other podcasts, explaining it is designed to have students to follow the fundamentals and a logical path to land on this conclusion themselves. Uh, that we should be moving away from the fiat standard, um, if I'm getting this correctly. I actually want to approach your decision making here from a different angle,、um, which is the process of active learning.、Um, how do you? So this is basically when you are avoiding a spoon-fed approach in education and to empower students to learn through their original thinking.、Um, what do you think is the key from a teaching perspective to enable the process? I want to preface this by saying that. Um, you know the the project is is、uh, is pretty big at this point, and and I'm actually not the person that develops the curriculum. I'm not a teacher,、um, and you know like all the all the success of the project is because of of the team, right? Not because of any individual.、Uh, that said, I'll do the best I can to answer this question.、Um, the power of Bitcoin is that it. Gives sovereignty to the individual, or it can give sovereignty to the individual. It could give power to the individual to make their own decisions. And if that is the objective, then it needs to be pure from the beginning. And the first, the first touch point that that our students have with Bitcoin is is often this course, right? So. If the end goal is that the students take control of their own lives and make their own decisions, it's paramount that we don't dictate to them what is right, what is wrong, what they should think. Right? The whole idea of of the project of what we do is not to teach Bitcoin; it's to empower the individual. Right? Bitcoin teaching Bitcoin is a tool. It's a means to an end, and knowing where that end is is really important. Like we 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 try to look into the future and what do we want to create? What what's the end goal? What's the end product? And that is an individual that makes their own decisions. And then so how do you get there? What's what's the first step on that? And it is certainly not to tell people what to think, right? It's to it's to Allow people to start that process. To allow people to start to think for themselves. Do you have any students who went through the entire ten-week program and decided that Bitcoin is not for them? No, no, zero. <laughs>、uh, I mean, we've we've had students that didn't finish the ten weeks, right? And presumably, one of the reasons is because they decided it wasn't for them after the second or third week.、Uh, But I think there's a very strong correlation, not just with what we do, but generally, the more people are educated on Bitcoin, the more they like it. Right? There's exceptions to that, but there's there's just a strong correlation between knowledge of Bitcoin and your opinion of of Bitcoin. You're a young program, and you haven't been around for for so long.、Yeah. And I've really watched you grow in the past year, and the size and the scale of your operation, and the flow of it. It's just incredible.、Um, we're still so early in Bitcoin, and many people who are kicking around, 
um, and try to kick off their, their Bitcoin-related project to help out the community under a very low budget. And I'm sure you started the same way. Mm -hmm. So from your, uh, from your experience, what are some key suggestions you want to give the initiatives out there that don't yet have sponsorships or a stream of funds to come in to stabilize their operations? A couple of pieces of advice. Don't be afraid to fail. I think that if we, like so much of, of the legacy world, is trying to avoid failure. And I think that is part of the process, right? Making mistakes and learning from them is part of the process. And you have to be okay with, with failing, right? In order, to, in order to be successful, you have to accept that failure is a possibility. And another, another thing that I think, uh, you know, a, a lesson that we've learned is passion and conviction are really important. Sometimes things will work out and sometimes they won't. Sometimes things will be easier than expected. Sometimes they'll be more difficult than expected. Sometimes dramatically so. And in order to continue to, to push through the good times and the bad, you have to be passionate, you have to have conviction. Um, it has to be something that you, you know, you're willing to sacrifice for. Uh, that, that is what gets you through challenges. Because there will be so many challenges. There will be more challenges than you anticipate. Um, so it's, it's, it's perseverance. It's persistence. And what was one of these challenges that you have faced through um, my first Bitcoin? One of the challenges is, for us, has been to turn down money. Right? We need money. That's really important. That's the gasoline that makes the engine run. But our values are super important to us, right? And those values are that education has to be independent and impartial. It would be many people approach us and try to co-opt those values. Not that, that's not the mindset that they have, right? That's just like how the world works. It's like, hey, we want to give you money, but this is what we want in return, right? That's, it's transactional. That's that is how the world works, right? Like, I'm not trying to, 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 to call out, like, a negative uh, exception. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm just saying that this is the world that we live in. And that, we had to say no to that pretty often. Like, we said no more than we said yes. And that is really challenging to say no to money when you don't have any, when, when you're struggling to make ends meet. But I think it's why we're successful, right? Because we were able to say no. And that, that also acts as a filter, right? So it's like people in the project that were in it for the paycheck didn't last, right? Because it's, it's people that were in it because they cared deeply about this were willing to make personal sacrifices and that means taking a pay cut 
get in less money than you would doing the same thing for this project uh, compared to, you know, a better funded, um, you know, for-profit uh, company. Like it, 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 but we only survived those, those tough times when money was really tight or non-existent because for myself and many others in the project, it was something that we just had such a high level of conviction for, such a high level of passion for, that you know we were we were able to to uh, to to make it through even even when when there was that obstacle. Talk about the adoption level in El Salvador. So you're 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 living there. I'm yet to visit um, at some point, but um, El Salvador has made headlines globally when it comes to becoming the have become the first country to adopt Bitcoin as legal tender. And from your experience and in your opinion, how has this decision impacted the nation and its citizen in general? The biggest thing that Bitcoin adoption or Bitcoin as legal tender here in El Salvador has done is the perception. Right, it's like public relations. Uh, El Salvador, three years ago, do a search on New York Times, like any 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 publication, previous to more than three years back. It's bad news, right? It's about it's about the gangs. It's about violence. It's about all these negative things. Now, do a search. For El Salvador, and it is you know it's it's actually a bit more diverse now, right? It's not just about one thing, but it's it's whatever critiques still exist. Um, it is wholly positive, right? It is net positive, uh, especially compared to what it was three years ago. So I think I think the biggest thing that it's done is it's changed the perception of what defines El Salvador, like what is the first thing that comes to mind when you think of El Salvador. And that's, I think what I've said so far is external, but it's also internal, right? Like we, when we have these graduations, we, uh, we tell the students that this is a big deal, what's happening here. Like, this is the first country in the world to have Bitcoin as legal tender. You guys are some of the first students in the world to, like, receive this education as part of your regular school day. This is a big deal. The future is, the future is changing, and you are part of it. And they feel that. They know that to be true. And that makes them more hopeful about the future, right? That like they're part of something, they're part of this change. Um, so both externally, the adoption of Bitcoin as legal tender has changed the narrative about what El Salvador is for, for, for the external world. And internally, it also helps Salvadorians feel that they are, that they matter, that they, you know, people are paying attention to them. I don't know what these numbers, what, what the accurate number is somewhere, this is a huge range, but somewhere between five and 20%. So I'll say 10% of the population is, is using Bitcoin once a month.
once a month or more, right? Between daily user or at least once a month, which compared to zero is massive growth. Yeah, and uh, I'm not surprised because for any national level policies to take place, it's, it's, it's bound to take some time. And especially for Bitcoin, it's such a holistic subject um, that literally changes when you're in when you're actually into it, you find yourself changing everything about what you previously believed and have to reconstruct your whole worldview to a big extent. So it's definitely going to be a process, that's for sure. And the other and to be honest, I don't see even in other countries, even among the circle of Bitcoiners, I don't see enough Bitcoin transactions just because people like to hold and um, they they don't want to necessarily spend their Bitcoin. They want to keep huddling and um, they they have this massive anxiety of spending Bitcoin when it's, it's a bear market. And um, on top of that, um, when I'm not doing podcasting, I'm helping uh, Bitcoin companies entering these uh, emerging markets. And oftentimes the vendors, they would really prefer stable coins, even if even it's on Ethereum with like, very significant gas fees, they would still prefer stable coin for the nature of um, less volatility because $5 can be a huge difference for them. Um, so my next question for you is how for for those of whom who are actually using Bitcoin, or taking Bitcoin as a payment method, how are they dealing with the volatility? Are they huddling? Are they um, transacting back into fiat right away? Like how are they dealing with it? Yeah, it depends. There's so um, the most popular Bitcoin application by market share would be Chivo, which is the, the government app. And Chivo allows the users to toggle back and forth between dollars and Bitcoin. So I could send I could send Bitcoin from my wallet to to a Chivo wallet. And they could receive dollars with it, right? It's like a set-in that they could toggle back and forth. Um, so that helps, you know, people that want to be exposed to the volatility, both like the upside and downside can be, but those that don't just, you know, just hold it in dollars. Uh, and then they could still, they could still spend, they could turn it into Bitcoin and spend it as Bitcoin if they want. Another popular wallet here I, I don't know what the number two would be um there's 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 a few there's a few good ones uh but one of them is is blink right formerly bitcoin beach wallet now blink and they have something called stable sets which is it uses a different method but but the the concept is the same that the user could toggle between holding the dollar value or the or the, the SAT value, the Bitcoin value. And with uh, El Salvador being yet still the major um, battlefield and uh, land of hope of um, Bitcoin adoption and the development, I can definitely see my first Bitcoin become a um, pole flag for everyone who's visiting El Salvador, for the organizations that are looking into expanding into El Salvador. Um, I've already known this from other places, but you guys literally know everyone in El Salvador. <laughs> and you have this um, endless, endless Bitcoin future talents that are coming fresh coming out of high school 
um, going into the wild world. They will some of them will stay in El Salvador, some might leave and spread the seeds into different places. So it's really way beyond what you are putting out there in the classroom. But think about the impact that it can have on the future generation, on what they can possibly become in the future. And you have many of them, and you have you you keep building on to that number. So it's very, very impressive of what you're doing. And thanks a lot for the dedication on behalf of the entire Bitcoin community. We all, um, all Bitcoiners ultimately benefit from this. And um, where can you tell us where can we find more about your work, uh, the program, and what are some of the ways to support you guys? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, so you could you could check out our website, which is so it's it's both in Spanish and English, so it's either mipremierbitcoin.io or myfirstbitcoin.io. You could, on that page, you could you could donate. You could also download the, the Bitcoin diploma, either in Spanish or English. Um, you could also find us on, on Geyser Fund, so we have a, an active campaign there. So those are the two ways to to financially support us is to donate either through the webpage or through the campaign on Geyser Fund. Uh, you could follow us on social media. So I believe on all the platforms, definitely Twitter and Instagram, um, it's the same. So it's my first Bitcoin underscore. Uh, and, you know, we'll, we'll be posting all the, all the cool stuff we're doing, photos of the classes, you know, um, upcoming events, our, our vision, our mission, what we think about things. Um, although what we think about things is Bitcoin education, right? Like we, we have a pretty narrow focus. Um, and yeah, so support us financially, support us with your talent, your expertise, your skills, uh, which maybe you could do from abroad if it's something you could do virtually or move to El Salvador, right? This is the place. This is the front line of the next war, right? This is this has so much impact. What happens here will echo around the world for a generation. And if you want to influence the future course of humanity, I can't think of a better time or place than right here, right now. Um, so come here, help us. And finally, this is a global movement, right? So just start teaching people in your own communities, in your your own workplaces, your own friends, your own neighborhoods. Uh, contact us if you want. Do it on your own. It doesn't matter. Um, but reach out to us if you want to... If, if you want us to share best practices that we found, if you want us to share uh, resources and just chat, maybe connect, like the, the network is getting big enough that that um, hopefully maybe you don't even reach out to us, you reach out to some other amazing Bitcoin educators, right? Because that's, that's the, El Salvador is the focus, but the mission is the world, right? Like we... We are here, it's the same as Bitcoin education is a means to an end, and the end isn't to be educated on Bitcoin, the end is to have agency in your own life, to be capable of making your own decisions, uh, 
El Salvador is also a means to an end. And getting it right in El Salvador leads us to the end of getting it right in the world. So, yeah, many, many ways that, that you could support. I'll build on to that point. Um, there's a strong sense of community in the Bitcoin space. And there's so many times I've realized that you just need to ask. You just need to reach out and don't be yeah. shy. Yeah. Um, oftentimes people in the space, they're more welcoming than you would because people naturally like towards strangers, towards something that they're unfamiliar with. It's easy to get intimidated and then you ended mm -hmm. up kind of scare yourself off and not doing anything. But what I've realized over the years, it's very you just simply you just simply ask because you don't lose anything if if um, you get a refuse you, you get refused and that's totally fine. Um, but the, the the key here is to trust the community. We're in this together and we're all dedicated in the same mission. And more often than not, people are more willing to lend support um, for meaningful initiatives because they want they themselves want to be part of something for the future um, to create that reality, to construct a manifest for um, the, the Bitcoin community and for every one of us trying to live the best out of our lives. So thanks a lot again for everything you do there. Um, I'm sure that my first Bitcoin and yourself will be a central hub of connecting a lot of these meaningful connections in the future. And um, thanks a lot for joining me today. Before we hop off, um, any final thoughts, final notes you want to make? We create the future, right? So if you are not active in that process, it means that someone else is on your behalf. So I think, I think what, Bitcoin, what Bitcoin encourages us is to take control of our own lives. And I think that that is, that is something that isn't theoretical, right? That is something that we could do right now. Right. Like if you care about the future of humanity, if you want to make the world a better place, uh, if you want to have an impact on the world, then then make it so make it so you you have that capability. So use use your full potential. Well, do <laughs> All right. Um, that's a blast. Thank you so much, John, for joining and um, really great to connect with you and met you in person. And I have to definitely get my ass to El Salvador yes. at some point very yes. soon. Yes. Yeah. I, w I was going to recommend come in November. Adopting Bitcoin is a really, really great conference. It's November 7th to 9th this year. Um, and we're going to have a lot of cool stuff in the week preceding that. Uh, which which are still in the works now, but it's going to be if if you want to check out Meet Me Bitcoin the week before adopting, it's a great time. All right, um, thanks for joining, and everyone check out my first Bitcoin, support them, uh, check out adopting Bitcoin. I've had friends who went last year and was they they couldn't recommend more, and they said there was very so much learning. Yeah. yeah, very very high signal. Um, Lots of learning opportunities, very, very down to earth, um, great space. You get to see Bitcoin adoption right in front of your eyes, which is very rare in the current circumstances. Um, so definitely check it out and see if you can make it. Um, but I guess as Bitcoiners, we were, we're all bound to go to El Salvador at um, <laughs> one point or another. So 
um, it could be any day. My name is Vivian Chen. I'm your host at Life with Bitcoin. I'll see you in the next episode. Bye. Thanks for having me.